0: Thank you so much for being here. My name is Julene Jackson. I'm with Moms from America, where we believe that liberty begins at home. The most important patriotic acts that we will ever perform will be within the four walls of our home as we gather people in and we allow them to feel the spirit of God and we teach and we talk about important things and we arm our children and our posterity and rising generation up, all who enter our home, hopefully leave a little bit more fortified and loved and, and, and a little bit more clarity about who they are and, and and where they should be going and how we want them to be a part of the solution and not the problem. And so, you know, we as mamas, we can't teach something we don't know. We can't prepare our children for the days ahead if we're not prepared. And so this is why you're here. This is why you're here. You're coming to to learn. And so, um, okay, I'm gonna ask, uh, oh, I, can I just ask for a volunteer? I'm so sorry. Someone that could just offer a little prayer before we get started in our lesson today, then we'll pledge and we will get going. Is there anyone? Is that you, Rachel? Thank you so much. Thank you, Rachel. Do you want to come off mute? Our mama from Florida. Hello there. Okay. <laughs> Dear God, thank you so much for us gathering together today um, to be such a strong group of women, to help and support each other, and to make a difference with our children and this, com- this country by starting in our home. We're so grateful for um, everything that we learn here and the discussions that we get to have. Um, and thank you for all that we have and help us to have Christ-like spirits and to serve others as much as we can each day. Amen amen and beautiful thank you rachel thanks so much okay beautiful mamas let's stand i pledge allegiance to the flag of the united states of america, america and to the republic, republic for which it stands one nation, one nation under god indivisible with liberty and justice for all Thank you so much ladies for gathering Rachel for your beautiful prayer it's such a good reminder that we're here to serve and to uplift and to fortify and that is kind of what we do best as as women that's how we're naturally wired to have, and I love that petition to have that you know that spirit with us to serve, that godly Christ-like spirit, whether you're a Christian or a Jewish or whatever your faith is, you are here because you believe and you're. we're wanting to invoke the heavens to help us because we can't do it alone. And so anyways, let's see our first slide. So remember, mamas, that we're cruising through these little books. I really hope you have these books. These will be your little gems. They'll be your treasure where we take our notes from in our curriculum and you fill in the blanks, the keys or the... Back for each section so do your little homework before you come to class or after class today make sure you fill in the blank this is what you will teach from this is what you'll teach your children from and if you're called upon to speak in your community or at church or at school you use these little books as a resource to be able to to speak powerfully so we're on seminar number three section two seminar number three is what has gone wrong with america like Why are we in this mess that we are? How have we become unhinged? And sometimes how can we repair or fix something if we don't know how it went wrong entities and people Uh, that we're trying to do us in, what were their strategies and how they have gotten their footholds. And so today we're going to talk about the assault on the moral fiber of America. I mean, this is, I believe, why we're seeing all these mass shootings uh, because we just gradually pull God and religion out of the public square, out of the schools. And when you don't have God to deal with your problems, then you turn to, you know, terrible, terrible means to, uh, you know, ease the pain in your life. And we are seeing all kinds of tragic things happen in, in people's lives. So let's see the first slide. I hope everyone had a wonderful Mother's Day. May is the month of mothers. This was me and my baby. She's uh, 15. She's fresh we We're getting to church. There's Ralphie, the dog. We drove across the country last week. I hope... For those that are mamas, that it was a it was a beautiful day. You know, motherhood is so under attack right now, and trying to be marginalized. We really do have like an acceptable martyr culture. Someone ex- I heard them use that phrase the other day with, with uh, the prevailing uh, you know notion that uh, abortion is acceptable. It's, it's actually a right. Some people will say it's my right to have an abortion. And so there really is attack on motherhood and our ability to bear and to raise up these children. And why is that? It's because the enemies of God, the enemies of motherhood, the enemies of family know that being a mother truly is the most powerful social, spiritual, uh, physiological, biological, and political position a person could ever hold. And, And mothers who are all in, we know that. And, and so this is why those that, you know, are, are anti-God and anti-family and anti-freedom are trying to marginalize the mother. So stand strong, mamas. We are God's secret weapon. I hope you had a beautiful day. And someone reminded me in that beautiful verse uh, when um, Eve was called the mother of all living in Genesis. Eve didn't even have any children. And she was called the mother of all living because she brings life and hope and healing and beauty uh, to all wherever she went and whether you have children or not we this is what we do we bring goodness and god and and love and light and organization encouragement uh, where we go this is inherently how we are wired from our our first earthly mother so let those attributes rise up in you and don't let anyone diminish you okay let's see the next slide here so we know the attacks, the the four hinges that have made uh, America the door strong and have kept us securely in place have have been tampered um, with. Let's see that that next slide. I think we we did we oh oh no we didn't yeah look, this is a good slide. <laughs> so so Monday. I went up to New Jersey, Trenton, New Jersey, and met with a cottage meeting group up there. Mama's in Neptune, uh, New Jersey on the South shore. There was about eight of them. And there was a rally, about 200 people were there. and, And their little group was a part of bringing this rally together at the state house. And I got to speak about the cottage meetings around the country and the role of a mother and how influential of a teacher and all You know, we can heal a nation when we heal our homes and our little neighborhoods. And it was so good, these women. And that, um, Tomorrow in Thursday's class, I'm going to tell you some of the things at their cottage meeting as they come together and learn certain things, how God has put on their hearts to begin to make an impact in their families and in their communities. And they're just really amazing. It was so inspirational to be with them. It was about three hours from my home in Washington, D.C. Okay, let's see the next slide, Tressy. Thank you so much. So we've been talking about in the seminar last week um, how there have been attacks on our education those godless education reformers, Horace Mann, John Dewey, and why, you know, our school systems look the way they do today. It was just a systematic design. It just didn't happen by accident well over 100 years ago. Today, we're going to talk about the attacks on uh, religion and the moral fiber, and next week, we're going to talk about the attacks on our constitution, and then uh, lastly, we'll talk about the attacks on, on our influence to to people of the world nations of the world so let's see that next slide so let's get started of all the habits which lead to uh, our prosperity George Washington said there's beautiful George in the back there (laughs) that religion and morality were indispensable disputes now by the early 1830s our founding fathers under the constitutional principles that they gave us Uh, communities were really starting to take hold and able to establish their own standards of decency and morality and safety because remember our founders wanted strong local government to be the keystone to preserving the kind of freedom and the kind of life that you wanted to live under within your own communities they wanted the communities to determine that and this whole philosophy of having many uh, religions and denominations and accepting all religions was having an effect as religion was spreading throughout the, this little newly formed country and religious beliefs were becoming in- integral to, you know, the neighborhoods and towns and societies and, and we were working under that Northwest ordinance that was adopted the same year that the constitution was written where um, the founders said three things were to be taught in the school systems knowledge morality and religion because our founders understood that people tend to behave according to what they believe, and they knew that what was taught in the schools would eventually become the standards of society and abraham lincoln let's see that next slide he said that he said the philosophies and then let's see that next slide the philosophies of the schoolroom in one generation will be the philosophies of the government in the next. That's why it was so important that we continue to teach religion and morality and knowledge so you could view, root the people in uh, virtue and morals so they could maintain a government that would be rooted on uh, by the voice of the people and the voice of the people would be adhering to natural law, godly law. So I've just given you the first three principles in that 5,000-year leap that the founders, you know, gleaned and drew upon these principles when they established this land, and so uh, about fifty years later, remember, let's see that next slide. Alex de Tocqueville, he was that Frenchman and kind of. Uh, A writer, he came to America because we were earning more per capita than the European countries, this new little fledgling nation, and he wanted to know what in the world was going on here in America. And he would go on to write that famous book, Democracy in America, in in the 1830s. And so he said, uh, he talks about there was no country in his observation in the world where the Christian religion retained a greater influence over the souls of men than in America. And he said, I sought for the greatness and genius of America in her commodious harbors and in her fields and prairies and her rich mines and vast commerce, but it wasn't there. That's not where America had their advantage. It was not until I went to the churches of America and heard her pulpits aflame with righteousness did I understand the secret of her genius and power. Isn't that interesting, his observation? And he witnessed that the American ministers were teaching the people uh, that the standards of morality and religious beliefs should be applied to every segment. So there no, there was no official church state like you know, the Church of England uh, that the founders and, and so many of those colonists had broken away from earlier when they came to America. But so indeed there was a separation of religion and, and state, but there was not. Uh, a a separation of religion and state yeah so there was a separation of church and state but not a separation of religion and state so uh to the founders religion was to be an integral integral part of the government and morality was to be the central theme of all laws in fact you know principle number four from the five thousand year leap says without religion, uh, uh, you know, a society of free people could not be maintained. So they wanted uh, religions to be an integral part in society and uh, in in the government. So let's see the next slide. Remember how last week we talked about these little readers, children were learning to read through the McGuffey readers. And McGuffey uh, uh, in 1836 put out these little readers uh, from kindergarten to eighth grade. Let's see that next slide. So I recommended mom's Get these McGuffey readers. I just got mine for, I think they were $92. They're a set of, I believe, six or seven little readers. And for two years, I had my little girl in seventh and eighth grade in our morning devotional. She would read a, a page or two from McGuffey. Now, these this is how children learn to read in the 1800s. So in the manual, there's a little example of a little lesson or story, when to say no. And I'm just going to read it to you. So this is how kids would, would learn to read by reading these kind of concepts. When we are tempted to use angry or wicked words, we should remember that the eye of God is always upon us and should say no. When we have done anything wrong and are tempted to seal it by falsehood, imagine the third grader reading these words, but they did. We should say no. We cannot tell a lie. It is wicked and cowardly. And if we are asked to do anything which we know to be wrong, we should not fear to say no. I mean, who wouldn't you love your little children to go to school and they'd be taught those kind of things as they're learning how to read, you know? So I would really a grandmothers and mothers, I would invest in these McGuffey's because after every little story then they asked a few questions. So my little girl for 2 years in the morning, she I'd make her answer the little questions and sometimes they're kind of old fashioned and she would laugh but we had really sweet little conversations from these mcguffey readers so you know during this time it was said that only the bible and the dictionary outsold these mcguffey readers in the 1800s there was over 120 million copies sold in english during this time period the middle 1800s so as a result these children were growing up to be you know have strong moral principles and spiritual strength because they wove in little commandments and golden rule and biblical stories. So at the, time, at the same time these McGuffeys are being used, remember we talked about Horace Mann, he kind of comes into the scene as well. Let's see the next slide. And he's the opposite of Mr. McGuffey. He uh, was about, he was a secular humanist and we know a humanist wants to separate the person from the divine. And they say that, look, it's, um, uh, it should be a human that solves human problems, not God. And he, uh, uh, he was an educator. He was a godless man, and he wanted to shift parents the responsibilities from parents to the state, uh, with you know um, kind of an elite educational establishment, and take religion uh, out and and did, certainly didn't think religion should be a part of the classroom, and uh, that children sh- shouldn't be responsible for the for their natural instincts of behavior, but that the, they should just be looked upon as innately good, and we know the Bible tells us that. we're we're natural, we have these carnal inclinations, and it's only through turning to God that we can overcome, so he's saying, oh no, it's all good, the kids are good, you know, that mankind was to be a measure of all things, not God, and that uh, there was no absolute values, Uh, you know, values were based on the situation, like situational um, ethics, and so it's interesting that also at the same time with these changes, kind of, you know, these Horace Mann ideas uh, starting to percolate that there were two educators. Let's see the next slide. In Europe, that are starting to publish their own writings for a new age. And I'm sure you'll recognize who they were. Their philosophies would one day go on to have a devastating impact in the United States. And we are seeing the impact of these men Karl Marx. He was a German social revolutionist, revolutionary, and he was. Uh, he lived from 1818 to 1883. Uh, so he, Karl Marx, actually died at age 64, and he died in London. So he is a German, but he died in London, penniless, in a one-bedroom apartment. So when he was a young boy, he went to the University of Berlin in Germany and he became intoxicated with philosophy, especially um, a, a Greek philosopher, Epicurus, who believed that there was no need for a creator since matter created itself. Isn't that interesting? And he called uh, Marxist his thesis in college. Uh, he He, in one word, in one word, this was the name of his thesis, in one word, I hate all gods. So as a young boy, he was... Kind of lost. He would go on, Karl Marx, and that's his friend Frederick Engels. They were uh, partners in crime. He would go on to write the Communist Manifesto. Now, Karl Marx, we know, is known as the father of communism. And we know that communism enslaves mankind. Whenever there have been uh, Marxist ideas, wherever Marxism was practiced, life has gotten worse for the people or the societies. There's not been a single exception. (laughs) to to this. And so, you know, he was an atheist, Karl Marxist was was an atheist, and he tried to uh, infect German society with his ideas. And he wrote a little letter to his uh, future wife, Jenny, they would, he would marry Jenny, they would go on to have seven children. But you know, I, I when I read what he wrote to Jenny before they were married, I'm like, Jenny, you should have uh, not walked, but run. When uh, you know he wrote this, he said in a letter to his future wife, Jenny, if we can but weld our souls together, then with contempt, shall I fling my glove in the world's face? Then shall I stride through the wreckage, a creator? I'm like, wow, that's his idea of a love letter. They would go on to have seven children. Four of his children died in childhood. Two committed suicide and one died of cancer. Maybe it was just having a father like that because he's kind of a doom and gloom guy. And so these two Marx and Engels began to rally around them communists who were willing to destroy Christianity and uh, uh, Judeo-Christian values. And these two became the founders of communistic thought and they used every economic crisis to replace what they called industrial capitalism with communism. Okay, and so uh, they wrote the Communist Manifesto they were anti Christian anti constitutional ideas and they had a tremendous influence on certain parts of Europe, especially in France in Russia, and later they were going to begin to, and we'll show today's lesson, how they were going to begin to gain momentum in the United States. It's really chilling. They wrote um, the ten, pl- 10 planks of communism uh, and how it was to be achieved with 45 goals, and you will see how we are almost living. I'll show you a book that's I would recommend, how we are living under these 45 bulls to this date. So if he was born, if he, if he was born in 1818, lived 64, died in 1880. Now, 150 years later, I think he would be very proud of, of his fruits. So both Horace Mann, let's see that next slide, both Horace Mann, who was a American godless educator and, um, Karl Marx and Engels, they were fans of Plato, the philosopher, and they tried to put in to play some of his uh, teachings uh, into the public education. And they were especially uh, kind of enamored with Plato's utopian society. Let's see that next slide there. This utopian society that talks about how we should, uh, okay, let's go back. I'm sorry, Chessie, let's go back to that last slide that talks about. Uh, This is from Plato's teaching. We should do away with the family and that children should be raised in uh, public finance nurseries, which we do have government subsidized nurseries, which make it easy for mom to lead their kids nowadays. And that Plato, this was Plato. I mean, he lived, uh, gosh, when did he live? In 300 BC or AD. So I don't have that. But anyways, um, Plato said that we should do away with religion and, and adopt a political religion And I I mean, the religion nowadays in the government in the schools is irreligion, secularism, that is the the religion, that is the political religion. Plato said, disallow the public to tell lies with the exception being the government. Okay, so this is from Plato's Utopian Society that Karl Marx and Horace Mann and those likes were so um, intrigued by. And all you have to think of is the huge censorship that we've seen the last few years where The public is not allowed to tell the truth, or else we'll just be, you know, our sites will be shut down, or we'll have a social media blackout, uh, except for the government. I mean, just think of the misinformation that they were allowed to tell uh, during COVID, and certainly during the election period, and and with, uh, you know, vaccinations and so forth. And also, Plato wanted to compel women to go along with men to war. And we saw that during the ERA movement and now women are on the front lines as well. And so um, uh, Plato uh, would say something to this effect, nobody whether male or female should be without a leader nor should the mind of anybody be habited to letting him do anything at all on his own initiative. (laughs) Okay. And so these were, this was kind of the doctrine of Plato and, and Karl Marx and Horace Mann and these type of, of people like this idea. You know, it was unfortunate that many Americans have not really remembered how much our founding fathers disliked Plato. They rejected uh, all these atheistic and totalitarian, meaning government controls everything, philosophies, and, and several of our founding fathers, let's see that next slide, did an in-depth study of Plato. is nonsense. And in a letter that John Adams wrote to uh, Thomas Jefferson, he said, I have labored through, uh, you know, Plato's writings, um, and they've been tedious. Let's, let's, let's just go to full screen, Trusty, for for a moment. I have labored through, (laughs) might be full screen, thanks, the the study of Plato. And to my astonishment, John Adams said to Jefferson, uh, I've been disgusted my astonishment was great, my disgust was greater and shocking, his laws and his republic, so Plato wrote some sort of book form about the republic, he said, I I was disappointed in what I read, because uh, Plato believed in a, an elite class, uh, telling people how they should live, and, and um, elite ruling, and we, we see that today with a uh, our government and the executive branch being so much more powerful than the voice of the people that our our, um, our legislative branch. So it's interesting in, in 1864, you know, there was these currents of these ideas of Marxism and, and Horace Mann. And so in 1864, uh, in order to kind of short the belief of our founders, they put, the government put in God we trust on our money and they felt that that was an appropriate thing to do because we were a Christian nation, and, and they brought and they took those words from the Star-Spangled Banner in eighteen fourteen by Francis Scott Key. Let's see that next slide. I think, Chelsea. Let's see where we are on our slides. Okay. So uh, there's a there's a wonderful little okay. Let's go to our next slide. There's a wonderful little video, twelve minute video. Plato, oh, and there is John Dewey. Let's let's just hold there, um, and we're going to talk about this little video, 12 minutes next, tomorrow Thursday. Uh, it talks about how we got that Star Spangled Banner and um, and the bombardment that Francis Key Scott observed while he was on a boat in the harbor of Baltimore. What I oh, I'll, i will show it tomorrow night, it's, it's so great, but anyway, so we took that in God we trust, we put it on our money to kind of, uh, you know, fortify and shore. Wait a minute, we're a godly nation here. Well, in the early 1900s, the father of modern education, John Dewey, so this is a picture of Don, John Dewey, uh, he came right mm-hmm. behind Horace Mann. Horace Mann now passes the torch on to John Dewey, and he took all of John or uh, all of Horace Mann's ideas and he uh, put them into a delivery system. And he would, let's see that next slide. He would read, um, let's see that next slide. (laughs) Okay, Uh, here we go. He would put it in a book form, Democracy and Education, and and which he called, uh, he called this the brainchild progressive education. And, um, this John Dewey, and he has nothing to do with the Dewey Decimal Dewey De- Decimal System. He taught at Columbia's University uh, School for Teachers for 26 years, and he was an atheist as well. And he uh, was a humanist. All right, so he wanted to separate people from God and just say, "Hey, you're human. You figure out the problem. You don't need to go to God." So did you know at the time that he was at Columbia University at this college for teachers, about a third of all the presidents and deans of our universities and colleges were being trained here at Columbia and he was head of this program. If you were to Google uh, Columbia School of Teachers, he it comes up as the very first notable alumni uh, and faculty. He's the first one mentioned now. When he was at Columbia, he was also um, the president of the American Humanist Society. And he put forth this humanist manifesto. Let's see that next slide, Tressie. And the manifesto talks about how we don't believe in God and that it's immoral to indoctrinate your children with such beliefs and schools have no right to do such. And it, it says, I believe that religious education and prayers, now this is John Dewey, Uh, that educated all the deans and presidents, a third of the deans and presidents in the 50s uh, at Columbia. He said, I believe religious education and prayers in schools should be eliminated. I believe that uh, denominational schools should be abolished. I believe that children should be taught religion as a matter of historical interest, but should be taught all about religions, including humanism, Marxism, Maoism, Communism, isn't that interesting, he considered those religions and other attributes of life. They must also be taught the objection objections to religion, I believe, in a non-religious social morality. Hold your bosom, ladies, when he says this. Unborn babies are not people. I am as yet unsure whether the grossly handicapped are people in the very real sense. I believe that there, there's no such thing as sin to be forgiven and no life beyond the grave, but death ever lasting and this he is known as the father of modern education all right so this blatant statement against religion was shocking to a lot of people to be honest with you so you can see the philosophies of horace Mann and john dewey uh, and those that were proposed by john dewey were resisted by a, a, a lot of americans at first but there's something that's going to begin to happen in our nation that's going to begin to distract people. First of all, in the early 1900s, um, we have World War I, okay? And then after that transpires, our country goes into a period of prosperity, we kind of have the roaring 20s. And so um, let's see that next slide. At a time in our nation, when we were kind of enjoying our first real prosperity for a time, uh, an atheistic leader, and a communist leader, by the name of Vladimir Lenin. All right, he was the president of Russia from 1870 to 1924. All right, so World War One transpired from about uh, uh, the night. Like I know it was under World, Woodrow Wilson from 1913 to 1921. World War I was not that long, but it was all in this time period here. We had won, we were distracted, we were prosperous, we are doing well. And at, at this time after World War I, it was Calvin Coolidge and he was Republican. He's from Massachusetts. He believed in capitalism. So we were really enjoying you know, prosperity economics. He was allow- allowing the markets to work well. And, and so we were a threat. I mean, look, we'd only been a nation uh, about 120, 30 years and we were, you know, the superpower of the world. And so Russia was threatened by us. And so the president of Russia in the, um, uh, uh, around the, right after that World War I period, he hired three men, three prominent scholars and, and, uh, and not scholars, two scholars and one artist as a scheme directed at the religious beliefs of the american people because he knew that you know some of our strength was in religion and we expressed some of you know our religious fervor through music and art so he hired these men to figure out how they could attack these two forms of expression as a means to weaken our country. This is fascinating to me. So first he employed uh, a Pablo, uh, Ivan Pablo. And remember, he's kind of famous for that experiment that every time you ring a bell, the, the, um, that you feed the doggy. So every time he hears the bell, he starts to um, uh, salivate, what's the word? Okay, oh, is that the right word? And 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 this is called uh, this study that he conducted was a uh, conditioned reflex, and and he, they were going to show how you can condition the minds through music. So then he hired another uh, Russian neuro, neurophysiologist, A. R. Luria, and he took the research of Pavlov and he put it into a book. And he described his findings in great detail concerning music and the nerve jamming effect you can have with music on children and how you can actually you can actually uh, make younger children uh, retard their mental ability and, and animalize them. And this is where some of the roots, we're going to see uh, during uh, the 60s of this, uh, you know, heavy metal and rock music and punk music to kind of this mind numbing effect that it would have on children. So to take beautiful classical music and and and, and um, kind of jam their little thinking in their nerves. And then let's see the next slide. Lennon employed an obscure artist by the name of Pablo Picasso, all right? And he wanted uh, Picasso to create art that would destroy faith, destroy tradition and the canons of what was deemed beautiful and and promote class struggle and and hence this idea of modern art was going to be introduced to turn the mind from what was good and true and beautiful to ugly so picasso was given this assignment to kind of radicalize art and make it ugly so picasso is actually spanish but he would spend most of his life in france and picasso would go on to declare himself a communist and he Would say my paintings are communist paintings. Isn't that interesting? I'm not saying all modern day, uh, you know, contemporary art, you know, is evil, but this is the underpinnings of how it began to take root. And um, let's see the next uh, slide. Something very interesting happened 10 years ago. My husband uh, was teaching these Healing of America classes in the country and one of his, and my husband was just a businessman and he loves America. So he was just doing this on the side. We make no money off of this. It was just our, our way to teach this history and, you know, sure, do good. And um, uh, the owners of the American, the Academy of Art, Now this is the largest privately owned art school in the United States and it's in San Francisco and about 11,000 young budding artists go there today. It's the Academy of American Art and it was founded hundred years ago in 1929 um, and it's family owned. And so uh, the grandfather started it and they reached out to Al and they wanted him to teach their history classes, like the healing of America history classes to the art students. So they flew Al and I to San Francisco and, and one day we, we toured you know, their facilities and they had a few campuses around the city. And then the next day they had us over to their house so the father was the president of the academy and his daughter, Elise, who is now the president today uh, was there and we met her and the wife and the family and they're very wealthy. It was a... Are, 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 are we still there? Oh, I'm sorry. Are we Jillian, still there? You're good. We're okay. good. Okay. Yeah, sorry. My, good my, little you, my, little, my little computer did something funny. Uh, and okay. so uh, while we're sitting around the breakfast table, they said something that I will never forget. The reason why we were there is because they were worried about the type of art that their students were producing. They noticed that the art from the students were getting darker and darker, and it was their belief that they had not been taught the history of America or the beauty associated with our history because they noticed the art was less imaginative and inspiring. Isn't that interesting? And so they were wanting to know if Al could teach. So Al was quite honest and told them, you know, the kind of history that he taught. And to be honest with you, they did not have Al teach. And I think it's because once they realized what they were going to be teaching in, you you know, one of the most liberal cities in the, the country, that there would be too much pushback. And so Al did not teach. And, and Al, you know, you know, I think they wanted him to fly uh, to San Francisco once a month and teach and then teach online. They were starting to experiment with online uh, teaching. That was a decade ago, which was interesting. But even today, uh, you know, you are hard pressed to find we've never had more access to movies. Uh, on TV and I the other night I spent a half an hour. how many of you done this going through Netflix trying to find something to watch watching trailers and after you know 50 minutes of watching trailers you just like never mind. We've never had so much content but content, but the quality is so poor uh, it, with what is being produced now in Hollywood and that kind of thing. Although I have to say mothers, I did just go yesterday to the cutest movie, um, "The Book Club," <laughs> Jane Fonda and Diane Keaton. And I'm not a real big fan of their politics, but it was a really clever, clever dialogue. And I took my two daughters; one is 28. The 15-year-old fell asleep. I'm 54. I I related. You know, these women are all in their 70s and 80s, and so it's so rare that I see a movie nowadays I feel like I can recommend, but one of the, uh, you know, the trailers before you know how they show previews uh, was a a show that's coming out called Intersex. And it talks about, you know, people that are born with male and female body parts and how it's beautiful and how we need to accept, even though they won't tell you this, but I Googled it, only 0.02% of people are actually born with intersex meaning they they might be a, a female but they have internally some male body parts but the the trailer was so cleverly done and i thought wow i mean they are just bombarding us with the narratives that they're trying to push particularly in the school systems even in the movie theater last night but anyways, so that was I. I kind of like that movie though. If if you have a good movie, good recommendation, put it in there because it's hard to find good quality content in Hollywood. And certainly, you know, the artwork. Living in Washington D.C., where there's just a scat of Smithsonian museums, I may, mainly like to go to the the uh, National Gallery of Art. With the we have a West West building and an East building, and the East building is all the modern day contemporary art and i it does not sink to my spirit or soul but when i go to you know all the the west museum where it has the classical and the medieval and the christian art and the renaissance and the romantic romantic period it's about 1850 and older almost to the beginning of time it is edifying and uplifting it has such a different spirit than when i walk through the tunnel to the east building and then just all this kind of kind of uh, radicalized uh, grotesque looking pieces. I'm, and once again, I'm not saying all modern art is like that, but but certainly a lot of Picasso's in, in that. And, and now I understand, you know, he specifically was hired to make art ugly and uninspiring and, and radicalized. So isn't that interesting, the attacks that took place uh, during this time period in the 50s and, and 60s. Okay, let's see the next slide where are we just so we saw the 40s and 50s, those were experimental years. Now we know that we had the greatest generation of of patriots after World War II. they lived through the depression, and they came back and they worked hard. Uh, But it was also, you know, with the GI Bill, more mothers were leaving the home and working, more people were going and being educated because of this GI Bill. And also, we began to see God pulled out. So some of the effects of of Marxism, Horace Mann, of John Dewey, uh, these this idea of prayer in school, Bible reading in school is challenged, and so the courts remember they misconstrue that separation of church and state by Jefferson 150 years earlier, and they begin to pull out prayer and government, and now says no religion can be encouraged in any way, and then we have that Cold War where remember we talked about last week. Um, Russia beat us to space, and the Russian satellite Sputnik was uh, uh, the first one uh, to, you know, to be put into space. And so, as Americans, we thought we were falling behind. And so, and and we will talk about this in uh, section four of seminar three. But to be honest with you, the research that put that Russian satellite into orbit was aided by Americans, and we used this opportunity to be able to change our educational systems okay claiming that oh no now we have a threat from the russians they're gaining momentum on us so we should change what we teach our children we should teach more advanced curriculums and pull out a history and any kind of religion and morality and we need to uh, uh, you know teach um, exact sciences and 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 so this is how we allowed you know, our American history to be pulled out of the school systems in the 50s, because we were afraid that you know it was better to be dead than red. We were so afraid of uh, Russians, and uh, and so we went from you know American history to civics to just social studies. I remember in middle school, uh, we didn't talk about American history. We talked about social studies, and it was usually the gym teacher that taught social studies because it required just a little bit of preparation. And so we allowed this to happen. Let's see the next slide. And what began to happen then it, within about 20 years, our we were always at the top of first world countries, our, our educational scores and testing, we began to decline by the seventies. You're seeing us now dip to the middle or to the bottom of first world countries. And that's where we are uh, now. And then during the turbulent sixties, we talked about last week, how TV became more pervasive and more mamas were leaving the home children were by themselves we had the unpopular war and and the, the hippie culture was taking effect and uh you know a decline in moral standards and they were convincing young people that your parents were all outdated and and there was a generation gap and they were introducing new types of uh language or terms such as free speech and do your own thing and my fair share and the police actions and alternate uh, lifestyles and and parents were being shrugged off as you know outdated obsolete non-progressive restricted to child development and um and so let's see that next slide so you see this widening gap between, the child and the parent's ability to impact what's going on in the school systems. And in uh, the 70s, there. Uh, remember that book, 1984? I have not read it, but the book was actually published in 1949, but it's a terrifying public novel that talks, and it was a best-selling book uh, that described a, a totalitarian society where the government has absolute control and that they punish People that, you know, uh, uh, it punishes love and destroys privacy and distorts truth. And uh, it began to feel like we were living in the 70s, this 1984. And um, let's see that next slide. In the 70s, remember Gloria Steinem and she, how she was uh, the president of the Women's Liberation and she was editor of Ms. Magazine. And she actually said in the 70s, by the year 2000, we will, I hope, raise our children to believe in human potential and not God. And she would uh, boast uh, by saying, for the sake of those who wish to live in equal partnership, we have to abolish and reform, reform the institution of marriage and that kind of echoed that humanist promotion of divorce, and, and through that women's uh, liberation movement in the ERA, um, and through her, no fault divorce began to become popular. That really stemmed from feminism, and and it and it, what it did was it mean meant that you didn't have to show any wrongdoing. It was easy. It was easier to get a divorce, and this this led to a sixfold increase in divorce within two years once no fault divorce uh, was enacted during this time period in the 70s. And it meant that the courts couldn't take into consideration certain things when issuing alimony or custody and it always no fault divorce ended up hurting the women right? The lifestyle, the women went down, more women begin to live in poverty. And, and when that happens, suicide goes up, depression, drugs, alcohol abuse goes up. And that was all on, on her watch. And, and she advocated. There's a really fascinating, I am going to recommend uh, movie. I think it's on Hulu now. If you just Google it, it's a 10 episode series came out in 2020 called Mrs. America. And it tells the story during the seventies of the ERA how, and how the Phyllis uh, um, Schlafly who started the Eagle Forum, which is a beautiful family group that's still strong today uh, and how Phyllis Schlafly and uh, Gloria Steinem battled each other. And it's an interesting period uh of, of women history that that really harmed women, Gloria Steinem. And I guess that's a picture of her today. Actually, she looks pretty good. But I think it's, I watched this show with my two girls and um, they could see, you know, uh, how how the women's liberation movement has done a real number on morality and marriage and the role of, of motherhood because of women like Gloria Steinem. So I would, I, uh, it, it's it's based on true history. So I would watch it. It will make you a little mad, but it's really interesting because it's in story form. And um, who is it? Kate Blanchett who plays the role of Phyllis Schlafly and she does a fabulous job. Who is the head of, she started the Eagle Forum. Okay, so let's see the next slide here. I think we're coming to the end of our time. The 19, uh, so the 1970s, you see this widening gap of this new morality as religion is taken out of school systems and major restrictions on religious freedoms. And then let's see our next slide in the 80s. uh, There's an interesting um, quote here. Uh, The Department of Education is actually enacted in 19. 1980. I mean, so much for strong local self-control. Now, all of the educational decisions are being made across the country in Washington D.C. by the Department of Education, or at least they dangle carrots in front of uh, you know state school boards in the term of money. Uh, you know, if you'll accept this national curriculum, core curriculum, or you know these kind of curriculums, we will give you money. And so many school boards are beholden to the money that the Department of Education and the government has dangled before them. In the late 1980s, a humanist, Dr. John Goodlin, who wrote for the NEA, the National Education society said our goal is behavioral change no so they're not even trying to be subtle anymore the majority of our youth still hold to the values of their parents and if we do not re-socialize them to accept change our society may decay (laughs) this is what i mean it's almost laughable and um and 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 look he worked for the he wrote for the national education associate Association. Reverend Donald Seals from Virginia, who was a great man, he has since passed, but he quoted uh, uh, John Dewey, who said this: if the public schools can keep children occupied from 7, 7 or 7:30 7 in the morning, sorry, you're hearing some of my dogs here throughout the day. If they can keep these kids away and out of the home with sports after school and homework in the evening, the parents will have less than a one-hour a day with their children and the families and Christian and uh, the Christian church influence over them could be broken in about a generation. Remember how we talked about that last week, that it was under Horace Mann, that they wanted to get rid of the one-room school schoolhouse and divide the family into, you know, elementaries, junior highs, and high schools, so that peer pressure becomes more prevalent in a child's life than the family. Because remember when the family went to school together, you know, the older brother could see what the younger brother was doing and correct him on the playground kind of thing. And so, you know... Um, but when you broke the family up, no one really knew what was what each other were doing. Um, I love how, as you read George Washington and Thomas Jefferson's books, they talk about the what? influence of their mother. And, you know, these enemies of freedom, these enemies of family knew that the mother and God had the, had the most influence on the ch- child. So they had to diminish it. Let's see that next slide, George Washington in The Real George Washington, get these books, they're so good, read them to your um, children. But he talked about how his mama, uh, Martha Ball Washington, he called her his reverend mother. And he said, you know, we were often at odds <laughs> with each other but he effectively called her his reverend mother. Both Thomas Jefferson and George Washington's fathers died at 49. So George Washington was 11 when his father died and Thomas Jefferson was 14. And so they knew strong men, but they also had to rise up and help their mothers. And remember, Martha stopped uh, George from joining the English Navy and she had to use earnest solicitations and yell scream cry who knows what she did and how different our country would have been if george had gone off and joined the the english navy and uh, thomas jefferson he talked about his mom jane randolph in the real thomas jefferson she said he said that she was the woman of uh clear and strong understanding she bore 10 children in the in a matter of 15 years and so you know anyone who is you know, of strong mind and of godly principles, knows the influence of the mother. And so, and so did the enemies of freedom. And that's why they wanted to, uh, you know, have these children gone from home. And you probably see it with some of your kids. They leave early in the morning, and if they have activities after school, they don't get home until six o'clock and they eat dinner, they go to homework, and they go to bed. And it hardly leaves you any time to really spend quality time together. And so um, let's see that next slide. So by the 1990s, the majority of the leaders that we see today are all graduates of this American educational society that is void of traditional and moral training. I am, I graduated in 1987 and I, I wasn't taught really, you know, the greatness of our founding fathers or certainly the constitution. If you had asked me when I graduated from high school in 1987 about the founding fathers, what I knew about them, I would say uh, Thomas Jefferson had children with his uh, slaves. And Benjamin Franklin was immoral because I saw some movies with him in a uh, bathtub with French women. I mean, seriously, these are my memories. And uh, oh yeah, George Washington—he lies because he chopped down a cherry tree, and he's racist because he has slaves. I mean, and I dare say, if you would ask children today, tell me about you know some things about our founding fathers. Those are the kind of things because they're not taught you know, the greatness of our founders intentionally and the leaders, a lot of them, even in Congress, you know, that they are products of this, this godless in 1968. Lack of knowledge has really left the school systems and communities vulnerable to the programs that are directly opposing the founding fathers viewpoint and, and, uh, you know, opposing the things that our founding fathers uh, said should should not be taught. In fact, now they are out of the closet, so to speak. Anything goes, and we obviously saw that with the critical race theory and that 1619 uh, curriculum that's t- being taught in the schools that you know that embraced racism, that are that taught, that is teaching our, our children that, that our founding fathers are racist. The laws and our legal institutions are racist. Your parents are racist. They're probably dangerous. And, you know, you need to confront this painful truth. We're a racist, abusive country and you're you're probably racist too. You know, these kids are getting that just because we for, for several decades have not known what our founders, we didn't even know, did we, huh? That in the Northwest ordinance, they wanted religion and morality taught along with with knowledge. And so um, the school teachers now are integrating all kinds of interesting history, racist history, lesbian history. They're not, they were told to be subtle. I don't even think school teachers are subtle about it anymore. Now, obviously there's a lot of good people in America who are not happy with these irreligious standards and uh, that are, are pervasive and accepted and being taught in the school systems today, but they just don't know what to do about it. And maybe that's how you felt before you started taking you know, these classes. I don't know what, what I can do about this indoctrination because everyone has their agency and are free and, and they just kind of felt like they've had to accept it. So without religion and morality in the schools or in the communities, they're becoming frightening places to send our children and 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 to raise you know raise raise our kids up. Let's see that next slide. And what we're seeing uh, is just like um, Susan in Texas before class started. We're seeing kids do the most frightening things. Mass shootings are almost the norm. It's like I almost can't even keep up. With you know the mass shootings and a mass shooting is considered for where four or more people are killed and we're seeing abortion is on the rise, suicide is on the rise. You know all the struggle for for uh, uh, sexuality and gender uh, orientation is causing you know young people uh, to just have great anguish and depression. And since COVID, thirty there's been a thirty one percent increase in psychiatric related hospital stays and so we're seeing the we're seeing the fallout of you know what has transpired in the last hundred years with these ideas that started in the uh you know mid-1800s with Marxism and and Horace Mann and John Dewey and so you know truly uh, let's go to the full screen just for a minute we're finished with our course study today but the greatest threat I believe to America and to our children is that, that we don't know what made us so great. We don't know our history. And so this is why it's so uh, beautiful that you're coming in, that you're educating yourself because it will be you that will change the hearts and the minds and save this next generation because to a big degree they're being deceived when we send them off. You know, to school or to the universities, or even you know, even if they're even if they're in a private Christian school. I mean, the way these kids look at TikTok and the way the algorithms uh, work, they don't even have to go looking for lies and indoctrination. It comes to them. Parents don't understand. How harmful uh, TikTok is, and those those kind of devices. Kids don't have to Google anything. The, the the reels come to them. You know, if they accidentally click on something, then the algorithms just start sending them. You know, LGBTQ information, Black Lives Matters information, and so you know, I think this is why Tucker Carlson said he doesn't trust. Remember that talk he gave at the Heritage Foundation like the wired kind of thing. He said, I don't trust anything that I can't touch a book or that I can't smell like people. I know (laughs) that I can get close enough that I know them. I trust people that I have, uh, you know, relationships with and books and probably older books because uh, he said so many of the young people nowadays, just like movies, we've never had more content, but it's just, the quality is awful. And we've never had more you know—a knowledge at our access digitally, but, but that's when the information can be controlled when kids are only getting their news sources digitally because then it can be manipulated. So young people are ignorant of facts. They're ignorant of the history uh, of America because it's been wiped out of the school systems. Because certainly we can't mention any godly influence that our founding fathers have. And so we have to wake up, mamas. And uh, I know the seminar is kind of heavy, ugh, you know, but um, it's it's good we understand the nature of the problems and to, and to know how far we've wandered from our original moorings. Because it's it, it will be impossible to really appreciate the task of putting putting it back together if we don't understand how we drifted over 100 plus years. Now I was where you were 15 years ago when I lived in that small town in Hood River, Oregon, and we were worried about our young people, what they were learning in the school systems. And so six of us got together because Glenn Beck held up the 5,000 year leap and said, moms, you need to study these principles and teach them to your children. And so that's what we did. And in, in the 15 years, I still know those ladies and and if I could tell you how God has directed them through the last 10, 12 years of studying, I mean, they've written books, they've run for office, they've brought their homeschooled, their kids, they've had radio shows, podcasts, they've taken historical, uh, one started a travel agency and, 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 and people, and now it's been a know what their children are doing because their children are patriotic because their mamas were teaching them these things. So I'm so hopeful, you know, as you begin to learn with your children and what you're learning now, teach your husband. I just had one of the mamas in New Jersey say that she went through the Healing of America seminar last year and her husband's a school teacher and he was asked to to teach an at-risk group of young people about um, politics and history. And he's like, I got to come up with the curriculum. And she said, you don't, I have the curriculum for you, Healing of America. So he now teaches the Healing of America seminars to the young kids at the rec center every other Friday. And so, and he didn't even go through the seminars. He just heard her come home and talk so much about what she was learning to the to him and, and look what he's doing now so you know as as we continue to learn and educate ourselves and know that look our freedom comes from god not from washington dc not the president of the united states not from programs and that we 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 keep our families close and we take our kids to god and we and we keep the constitution, you know, the, the founding fathers and they great faith stories that inspire us. Um, let's see that next slide. That, that it will remind us that, you know, really the greatest work we'll do. Let's see that last little slide will be within the four walls. This was just this picture was Mother's Day. This was Sunday. And the picture of um, this is my beautiful, colorful family there with the women, there's two grandmothers there there's aunties, there's a, a young millennial 28 year old. There's a little, um, my little niece is a freshman in college and then my little high school girl. And then all the men, you know, we've got our little nephew who's just a little guy. And then we've got a young kid who's a, um, in college there and a young newly married and some uncles and grandpas and we talk about god when we're together and and these young kids over here talking about these important things in our country and we and we have to look for opportunities to you know children of all ages to 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 teach them, to tell them about what we're doing. And I I told some of them I was going up to New Jersey the next day and what I was going to speak about. And all their little ears are hearing it. So we keep these kids close. We gather together. We need multi-generational experiences. We need our grandmas and grandpas. Our grandparents there, uh, my husband's grandparents, are so spiritual, are are in church. They're Baptists. They're in church every week. And I feel so blessed that my children have seen the example of godly grandparents uh, in their lives, and it's helped shore up their identity as as spiritual beings. And and so as we do these things, mama, as we come together, God will put on your heart, I got to do something. I got to start doing something more with my children i gotta start doing a devotional where i teach them a little story before i put them to bed or in the morning or at the dinner table or i need to go to a rally or i need to run for the school board god will put upon your hearts and i truly believe it will be the mothers of america that will wake up the people around them and that you will be the impetus of healing this nation and this nation enduring and God intervening and healing our land because of you, righteous women like you. I mean, it's been shown all throughout history. When God needs something done. He puts that idea idea into the heart of the mother and then the mother instills that into the child. And then God waits for that child to grow up because truly he knows the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. And so that's the end of our class today. Next week, we're going to talk about um, the attacks on our constitution, and I hope it will really help cement you and connect the dots about how our constitution has changed from what the founders gave us and and the impact that we're seeing in the world today. Now, hang on, because remember seminar number four is all about how we heal the home and the families, how we heal the school systems, how we heal the cities, the states, and the constitution. But we're we're primarily focusing on, the problems, And I don't think I don't think I really talked about that naked communist book it was a red book um, that really strips away all the romantic ideas of, of communism, Cecil Demille named that book because he was friends with Leon Skousen who wrote the naked communist, but that would be a really good book to read as a book group in, in your cottage meeting at some point we have the study guide for that fill in the blank. And I thought about teaching it to you mamas but it's kind of heavy it's like seminar three but 200 pages but it's easy reading you really can kind of understand it and so I just have been hesitant to teach the naked communist because it's just like oh we're just living you know all the problems of how communism is infiltrated into America but that's a really I would get that book it was written in 1958 but there is nothing outdated about that naked communist book you can you can find it on Amazon but um anyways that's just a side note because I think I forgot to expound upon that slide